Hi, I'm Dan, and I want to welcome you to Church Online. If it's your first time, please take a minute and fill out a quick guest link on our website after the broadcast. We would love to connect with you, no matter where you're watching from. You can also give online by going to lifechurchutah.com or by texting LCGIVE to 95577 at any time during this morning's service. Once again, thank you for making Life Church Online a part of your weekend. For more information, visit us at lifechurchutah.com. And today I'm going to talk with you about having home field advantage. So if you want to pull out your notes for today's message, you can go ahead and do that. Now, as I already said, today is the Super Bowl. All of you know that. And you probably all know that this is the highest watched sporting event in the United States, uh, way above all the rest. Now, if you take all the games of the World Series and total all of them up, then it's actually more than the Super Bowl. But, you know, a lot of that's re people repeating themselves, you know, over and over and over again. So the, for a one-game event, the Super Bowl is the largest one-game event in American uh, culture and so forth. And it is estimated somewhere between 110, 115 million people will be watching the Super Bowl. Of course, most of us are watching for the commercials. You know, because everybody knows that Super Bowl commercials are so funny and everything. They, they go over the top usually on those. Sometimes they have bombs, but usually they're, they're pretty good. And so we watch it for the commercials if we don't watch it for the game. Some of you don't care at all about NFL football. I say, good for you. You probably will live longer. <laughs> those of us who are Bronco fans, it cuts, I think, our life expectancy down by about 20 years because of all the stress we live with uh, that and deal with, but I'm just kidding. We, my Broncos won two years ago today, so hallelujah. And uh, so things good can happen too with being a Broncos fan or an NFL fan or whatever. But, you know, uh, one of the things that they talk about in, in football is something that's called home field advantage, which is what we want to talk about today, having a home field advantage. Now, the, the difference between the Super Bowl and a regular NFL game is that there is no home field advantage in the Super Bowl. The reason for that is that the, the capacity of, of the stadium there in Minneapolis will basically be divided 50-50 between people who are Patriots fans and people who are Philadelphia fans. And so there's no one team that will really dominate in terms of crowd size and so forth. But most of us understand what a home field advantage is. When you have the home field advantage, that means you have the crowd behind you because you're at home in your stadium, and they can be very boisterous and very loud, which can really help the outcome of the game in your, fa in your favor if you're the home field or the home team. Now, I've always heard that the Seattle Seahawks had the loudest stadium in the NFL, but um, I... I have to tell you that in 2014, the Kansas City Chiefs actually beat the Seattle Seahawks with the loudest recorded decibel reading in, in any, of any stadium in the NFL. That decibel reading, now decibels is a factor of loudness in, in sound systems and so forth. So the, the loudness that they registered was 142.2 decibels. Now, if you don't know what that means, let me just give you something to compare it to. Our worship set here on, on Sunday mornings generally is between 85 and 90 decibels. In fact, during practice this morning, I went up and checked 
to see what the decibel reading was reading. And the meter was reading 87, 88, 89, whereas one time it hit 90. So somewhere between 85 and 90 is the decibel reading in here. Uh, that's the loudness factor inside this building here on a Sunday morning. Now, if you don't know decibels, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on it. In fact, I don't even remember exactly the criteria for this. But it doesn't take that many decibels for you to double the sound level. So if, if you have a decibel level of 90, it's not twice as loud if you're 180. In fact, it may be five or ten times as loud at 180 compared to 90. So it's not like a factor of doubling that uh, means it's twice as loud. So when we're talking about a decibel level of 142, I can't even imagine how loud that would be. 142 decibels would probably give you ear damage and might even be dangerous to some people in terms of their health. If they were in a sustained environment of that much noise, it would damage them physically because of the loudness of 142 decibels. The average level of sound in most stadiums is probably somewhere in the 110 to 115 range. So just kind of think about that in terms of 142. It's just, it, it's, it's incredible. But the thing is, fans are very selective as, as to when they release the noise. And, and we know they, they don't do it when their team is on the offensive. They're pretty quiet. You know, they're cheering them, hey, go for it, you know. But in terms of really uh, disruptive noise, they're pretty quiet while their team's on offense. They wait until the opposing team is on offense, and then they release the roar. And what happens is that makes it almost impossible for the opposing quarterback to, to call or change plays by, on the basis of what he's seeing the defense do, which is part of the strategy. You come up to the line, and the, the opposing quarterback, when I played for the NFL, this is what I did, and I would look out, and I would see what hap was going on, and I would make these calls, you know. But if you were in this really... Uh, hard uh, to, to hear stadium or loud stadium, you know, they, the guys, they wouldn't hear me down at the other end. And so it makes, uh, makes it very difficult to change the play. Oftentimes there's a lot of penalties that come because of the loudest. Guys don't hear the snap count and so forth. They can't hear the quarterback, you know. And so it leads to a lot of, of penalties, thus home field advantage. That's the advantage that it gives you playing in your own uh, home stadium. Now, I know this is more information than you're interested in, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because I have it in my notes. Um, I've read, uh, and I don't have any other criteria other than reading this, uh, that the top 10, and the keyword here is consistently uh, loudest stadiums in the NFL are these stadiums. Number 10 would be the Redskins in Washington, D.C. Number 9 would be the Broncos, yay, in Denver. Number eight would be the Cowboys in Dallas. <sighs> Number seven would be, <laughs> would be the Packers in Green Bay. Number six would be the Patriots in Foxborough, which is yeah, part of Boston, in case you didn't know that. 
Number five will be the Vikings in Minneapolis, where the Super Bowl is going to be played this year. And the, and the Vikings almost, well, they didn't get close to winning last week, but they, if they would have won last week, they'd have been in the Super Bowl, which would have been so cool because that would have been the very first time that a hosting stadium had their team in the Super Bowl. So I was really rooting for the Vikings, not because I'm a Vikings fan necessarily, but I just thought it would be cool to have a home team represented in the stadium. But it still would have been divided 50-50 in terms of, of, of uh, seats. Number four stadium is Saints Stadium in New Orleans. I've been there. Uh, number three, the Colts Stadium in Indianapolis, which I don't know why they have anything to cheer about in the Colts. Uh, that, woo, that's a bad team. Number two is the Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs is the second loudest. And number one consistently is the Seahawks in Seattle, Washington. And the other thing I would observe about Seahawk fans is they're very annoying, and uh, by and large, and I just don't usually care for them much, you know, but other than that. So now, if these guys are playing in their stadiums, boy, they're getting quite an advantage from the loudness factor of their fans. And now, I was thinking about that, home field advantage. Wouldn't it be good if our homes gave an advantage to our families? Wouldn't it be something if there was a home field advantage to our homes? Because here's the truth. Your family, your home will either give your family an advantage or it'll take that advantage away. It'll hurt that advantage. And I'm not just talking about the kids, although the kids are really important in this context, but the, the husband and the wife, all of us, either get a, an advantage from it or the advantage is taken away. So how can we give our family a home field advantage? Well, today I want to talk with you about what I, I believe to be maybe the most important predictor of the future of the success of your family or of your life personally. It's this, how you handle conflict. How you handle conflict. It will predict how well your family does, not how much you feel in love. Because feelings go up and down. There are days you can say in a marriage, oh, this is the most, I can't believe what I'm experiencing in this marriage. It's just so wonderful and it's so completing to me and I just love it. And then there are days in that very same marriage where you're saying, oh my word, I can't believe we got connected, you know? And, and I see a lot of heads nodding. So you know what I'm talking about. It's not the feelings of gushy love because feelings go up and down. It's how you handle the issue of conflict. Now, I was reading some thoughts along these lines from Pastor Rick Warren out there in California who really inspired me in, in my own thinking about this whole subject of conflict and marriages. You know, Jesus said over in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, he says, a home filled with strife and division or dissension destroys itself. A home that is filled with strife and division will destroy itself. Now, if that is true, and I believe that it is because Jesus is the one who said it and we accept his word, then it's very important that we learn how to handle strife and division and conflict, right? If, if, if this is key 
to our family making it, our home making it, we better learn how to handle strife and division because if we don't, it's going to destroy our family. And we understand that. So, you know, one of the things that I have noticed is that we are real good at, and I'm not saying this is wrong, we are, but we are really good at making ourselves look better than sometimes we really are. Now, as it relates to this whole subject of conflict, strife, division, and all like that, we are sometimes, when, when we sit, back, sit down and think about it, we're, we're probably not as good at, or strong as what we even think we are in terms of, of our families and our marriages. And the reason for that is sometimes we can fool ourselves. We can, be, we can be in a situation where we're not really seeing it clearly even ourselves. But for sure, when it comes to our relationship with other people and, and, we, and our time with other people, connecting with other people and so forth, we can, for short amounts of time, make ourselves look really good to other people for short amounts of time. So say we come to church, or maybe we go to work, or maybe um, just in the neighborhood or whatever. We can put on a certain image, and people will, will look at us, and they'll say, man, they, they, are, they have a great family. They have a great relationship in that family because those people never really see the real us. They, they see what we, the, the image that we project. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, because I don't think we need to lay out every negative thing that goes on inside our brains. I think that there's a place for keeping that between us and God and letting God heal us. But my point just simply being, we can have an image that we put forth that people get certain ideas about us that may not actually be factual. People think everything's great, and maybe it's not great. It's because they really don't know us. They only see the surface of us. They don't see the real us. But at home, the real us comes out. That's where the real us shows up. In fact, I heard one guy say, and I think this is so good, if you can remember what I say here, write it down, it's, it's worth keeping, that the measure of your success is not how much you own or your positions in life, but the true measure of your success is when those who know you the best love and respect you the most. All right, that's it. That's the part to write down. When those who know me best love and respect me the most, that's when I know I'm a success in life, not on the basis of how much I have in the bank, not on the basis of, of what position I hold in the world or in my job or whatever. Uh, and I say that because at home, the real us comes out. And if what's coming out of us is, causes our family to disrespect us, then we're not as successful, no matter what kind of car we drive, no matter what kind of wardrobe we have, we're not as successful as we think we are. If people don't respect us as, as individuals who really know us, at home, the real us comes out. That's when, when we say what's really on our minds is at home. We're, we're less guarded in, in our home. And our words, see, what's important about what you say is your words reveal what's in your heart. 
And so sometimes we try to be real careful to guard, you know, that nobody can see our heart, but the window into every one of our hearts is our words. It's what we say. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6.45. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So in other words, what comes out of you, what comes out of me, is what's on the inside. And we are usually less guarded about that when we're at home. And so we say things at home that we wouldn't necessarily say around other people. We'll snap at one another more quickly at home than when we're around other people. When we're around other people, we'll make it look good, we'll let it go. But when we get home, we don't let that happen. So we snap at each other. We say unkind things because that's what's on the inside of us. And long term, it's hard to guard and keep people from seeing what's really on the inside over the long haul. In today's Super Bowl, now everybody will have their eyes on some key players. And for, for, most, most, for most football teams, the key players are, of course, the quarterback. He'll be one that'll be watched. And, and of course, in, in today's game, uh, Tom Brady has the edge on that because the Philadelphia Eagles have a backup quarterback because their number one quarterback got injured about a month or six weeks ago and tore his ACL, and so he's out for, for the season. All right, so the edge goes quarterback-wise to, to the Patriots. Another key factor is, is, of course, the running back. These guys are the star players, quarterbacks, running backs, maybe wide receivers. You know, Everybody looks to see how they're doing. But you know, that's not really where the game will be won or lost. You know where the game will be won or lost? It'll be won or lost in the trenches. It's what's called the trenches. That's where the offensive and the defensive lines clash with one another. And the bottom line is, whatever team has the greatest uh, intensity on those lines, the, the, whichever team has the greatest talent on those lines, it's probably going to be the team that wins in today's game. And you know, a lot of people think, they think that way when it comes to their marriage. They, it, it's kind of like a Super Bowl to them. They think if I can just win at the point of contact, you know, if I can win in the trenches, if I can dominate her, if I can control him, if I can get my way, then I'll win at this game called marriage and I'll be happy. But marriage is not like the Super Bowl. It's not a 60-minute struggle. Marriage is a lifetime, and it's played out in segments, not called quarters, but segments called days. And that's where it's won or it's lost. And if we're going to win at our marriage, we have got to learn how to handle those daily points of conflict, those daily, um, those daily points of, of tension and contact that will come up because conflict is a part of every marriage, it's a part of life. There are no marriages that do not have conflict. Not mine and not yours. It's how we learn to handle that. And, and here's another thing, it's a kind of a side note. But it, I believe that if you and I can learn how to handle conflict within our families, it'll set us up for success in life. 
Because if we learn it in the proving ground of our family, we'll learn how to do it out there in the rest of the world. And it'll cause us to succeed. But if we fail in family relationships and conflict management here, then we're probably going to fail out here as well. And we'll never become all that God wants us to be. So let's look at how to handle this thing called conflict uh, so that our lives can have an advantage in the world. We want to have a home field advantage. All right. So why we have, first of all, I want to talk about why we have conflict in the first place. Why does this happen? Where does conflict come from? I mean, you know, when, when we were dating, I mean, all we saw was roses. When we were dating, uh, man, we couldn't get enough of one another. I mean, it was like she was perfect and she thought I was the end-all, be-all, you know, and all. And I mean, that's, that's the way we saw one another. And, 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 and we loved one another based on that. And we, we just loved being around one another and everything. And conflict was the farthest thing from our minds. I mean, when we were dating, we thought we had found the perfect person. But now, maybe it's tension. Maybe it's conflict. Maybe it's coarse words. They're, they're filling our lives together nearly all of the time. What in the world happened? Well, the Bible is very clear about what happened. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. So he says there's these wars that are going on, but not just wars, even as, as small as quarrels. Everything from quarrels to wars come about from the same thing. They come about because you want your own way. That's what it's all about. So James is saying here, we've got this war that, that's taking place, and it's not the war against terrorism. That's not what he's talking about. It's, it's a war that's inside of all of us. It, in fact, it is still at the root of all international tension and fighting, whether we're talking about uh, in the heart of a bin Laden or in the heart of a Hitler or whoever else, or even in the heart of us on the local level, within our families and so forth, it's a war for control. Who gets their way? Who wins? It spills out into all of our relationships, whether we're talking about nation against nation, because that's all it is. This group wants to control that group. That's war. Okay? He, husband, wants to control her wife. That's war, that's quarrels, that's conflict. I want what I want, you want what you want, and the result is tension. Why do you think car manufacturers build dual heat and air conditioning controls in the cars now? <laughs> Listen, you know, when you buy a new car, you get that list of all the options that your car has on it, you know, and you read, and, and they'll have on there dual heat AC controls. You know, they ought to take that out and just call it conflict management. <laughs> because that's what they are. They, I can remember times when Carrie and I would go on trips when we were younger. And the little, our girls would be in the back seat. They were little at the time. And Carrie would be over here and I'd be driving. And she'd be under a blanket, clear up to here. 
all the way covering her feet and her legs and everything, all the way up to here, and I would have the AC blasting on me to try to stay cool. Uh, now, it's the opposite. I've got the blanket clear up on me, and she's got the AC blasting on her, but that's another subject, as they say. Anyway, <laughs> life changes, you know, things change. But the, this whole thing of dual AC heat controls is one of the greatest inventions they've ever come up with. I truly believe that Carrie and I can make it another 45 years simply because of dual heat AC control in the car. It has set the tone for our marriage. Sometimes conflict comes from silly things. How you fold the towel is different than how she folds the towel. You fold the towel by wadding it up and throwing it on the counter. And she comes to you and says, why didn't you fold the towel? You say, I did. I wadded it up and I threw it on the counter. At least I didn't throw it on the floor, you know. Immediately, you got conflict. Maybe it's over something as silly as toothpaste. Who puts the cap on? Who doesn't put the cap on? If you don't put the cap on, it gets hard. And then it gets hard to get that out of there, you know. And so why don't you put the cap on? And so conflict happens. Maybe it has something to do with taking out the garbage. Whose job is it to take out the garbage? It can be so many things, and, 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 it, can, and it can get in and become a conflict kind of a situation. Small becomes large because we're all different. We see things differently, and we want it our way. Do you know, and this is almost unbelievable if, if you're new to the Lord that this is true, but it is true. I know of churches that have split over the color of carpet that was chosen for the auditorium. People became so mad at one another over the choice of the carpet that they, they bolted from the church. Unbelievable. And so we end up in our homes and we end up in our churches sort of like the down markers of a football game we're chained together, but we're 10 yards apart. If you know football, you know what I'm talking about, the, chain, the, the down markers that they have. And they start out 10 yards apart. And this is where the ball is, and it's got to go this 10 yards in order to get another first down. And they're chained together. Those markers are chained together, but they're 10 yards apart. And that's the way we are in our marriages. I was talking with a man just this past week that was sharing with me some issues that were going on in his family. And, and he said, we're committed to not divorce from one another. And as he shared with me what was going on, I said, you know what? You already are. You're still married, but you're divorced in here. You're, 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 you're uh, connected together by the chain, but you're still 10 yards apart. The divorce happens before the divorce happens, obviously. And some people are divorced even though they're still married. The problem is, we think the issue is the issue. We think the conflict is about toothpaste and, and how we fold uh, the towel and, and carpet color and so, so forth. But it's not about that. The issue is far deeper. It's an issue of control. Do I get my way or not? Because everybody knows my way is the right way. So do I get my way or not? That's why conflict happens. Secondly, how do we respond then to this conflict that we're inevitably going to experience in life? David prayed an important prayer in Psalm 139, verse 23. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
In other words, as I referred to just a little bit ago, I said we are great at deceiving ourselves. We think we know what's in our heart. But listen, God's word says the heart is, is incredibly deceitful. And it, it can, you can be fooled by your own heart. And so David knew that, and so he said, God, will you search me and let me know what's going on inside my heart that needs to change inside of me? Because some of this conflict is not, is not me standing up for the right thing. It's me having the wrong attitude and spirit, and that's what's causing the, the conflict. Show me, God, what I need to do to change. It's because if we're going to learn how to respond successfully, we have got to confront the truth about what's going on inside of our own hearts. And that takes God's spirit to reveal it to us. Because we'll, we'll fool ourselves. God, will you show me? Now, I want to share with you, there are basically five ways that human beings respond to conflict. The first one I would call no way, or excuse me, my way. This is the response of the person who thinks they're 100% correct 100% of the time. How many of you are married to that person? No, don't raise your hand. You know, my way. It's got to be my way. All right. Secondly would be what I said just a moment ago. No way. This is the individual who um, hates, and nobody likes, but hates confrontation so much that they avoid it at absolutely all costs. Now, the problem with being that way is this. Uh, if you take a no-way approach and you just let yourself get dominated by other people, eventually it's going to blow up. Now, so if, if you're dominating your spouse, you may think you're winning, but you're not. Eventually, that thing is going to blow. It's going to blow like a volcano. You know how the volcanoes get that pressure building up and then they explode. And that's what happens in a lot of marriages is, is one or the other is, is kind of a, takes a no-way approach to the conflict that's going on in the marriage. And therefore, later on, when they feel, I'm not going to take it anymore, they explode and now you're on a long, not, maybe not even long, you're on a road to... to uh, to divorce. Third way is what we might call your way. This is the Burger King way. <laughs> Have it what? Your way at Burger King, you know. And so this person always gives in because they value approval more than they do principle. That's real important. They value approval more than they do principle. And so they give in to whoever's dominating. We see this a lot like gang. This is the essence of gangs. The members of a gang follow the leader of the gang because they value acceptance and approval above principle within their own heart. And so they'll start doing things that they know is wrong right at first, but they'll give in and do it because it's easier to follow than it is to take a stand and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Then there's halfway, number four. This is compromise. So we'll take half of your idea, half of my idea. We'll compromise them together and come out with something that is more acceptable. And this is, this is, uh, this is better than the other three, but it's not the best. The best one is number five called our way. Instead of just taking half and half from each of us, we bring our two worlds together, our two holes together, and... and 
and we find something better. So I'm not like taking part of Carrie and she's taking part of me. We're bringing both of us completely together and we're reevaluating what it is that God may want to do through us. In other words, I have come to this understanding that I am a better man because of her. Because of her contact in my life. I am a different man because of her. Hopefully, she's a better woman because of me, and she's a different woman because of me. It's not just that we have compromised our lives. We've become different through the course of time. That's what we're talking about here on our way. Actually, we got to believe that God put us together, and God put us together not to just dominate the other person, but God put us together to develop a common new function or way of living life. And so now, Carrie and I are different than we were uh, 45 years ago when we got married. We, we are different people because what we are individually has blended together to become something better than we were alone. And I believe that number five is God's intention for how we handle conflict in, in all areas of life, uh, in terms of, of, our, of our church, in terms of our marriages and our families, all of it. Which brings me to my last thought this morning. It's going to be this, God's way to resolve conflict. For some of us, we resolve conflict much like the Super Bowl teams will resolve or will, will handle their conflict today. Clashes, um, yelling at each other, you know, they get into each other's face and start pointing at one another, sound like your house, you know taunting one another, pushing anger, even violence. Football's a violent game. There's violence in homes too. The goal is to dominate in order to get our way. That's the goal. But that really works. We need a new way. We need God's way of dealing with conflict. So let me give you five steps in resolving conflict God's way. The first one I would say is basic. Become a sold-out follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. Make him Lord and ruler in your life. Look what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16 says. As parts of the same body. What body is that? What's he talking about here? As parts of the same body. What body? The body of Christ. As we're all part of the body of Christ. Listen, if you've never thought about this, if you and your husband or you and your wife are both Christians, your wife is more than just your wife. Your husband is more than just your husband. He is your brother in Christ, and she is your sister in Christ. And as such, we have a different relationship than just simply man and wife. We have this union that is also spiritual that takes place in the spirit. And he says, as part of this body that we are all a part of, look, I underlined the, the next part. Our anger against each other has disappeared it's gone, for both of us have been reconciled, that has been brought back to God. We're no longer strangers from Jesus. We're now brought back to God through Christ. And so the feud ended at last at the cross. What a powerful, powerful statement that is. When the feud ends, this is the, this is the truth you get from this. When the feud ends between us and God, it has the potential to end between us and us. When it ends between us and God, it has the potential of being healed between us because what happens 
is that when you make Jesus Savior and your Lord over your life, he is going to convict you when your words and your actions get, get crossways, when they get out, out of where they should be. And, and as a believer and a follower of Christ, he'll start dealing with you about the way you treated her or the way you responded to him. And as such, as a believer, you'll say, God, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to do what you want me to do in this situation, even though I know I'm right and she's wrong, you know, or he's, he's wrong and I'm right, whatever, however you want to put that. Even though we believe we're right and the other person is wrong, we're gonna, we know that what the tension that's going on between us as, as Christian, as a Christian brother and sister is not right and God wants us to make it right and so we go to one another and we make things right. We follow the, the will of God and the direction of the Spirit, whether we want it or not, and that brings healing. It starts to heal our lives. So the key is to sell yourself out to Jesus to where you become a full follower of him, not a religious Christian, but a disciple of Christ. You understand what I'm saying? A follower fully of Jesus Christ. It'll change your life. Uh, number two, talk to God about the conflict. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything, but talk to God about everything. Talk to him about, so before you talk to your neighbor, before you talk to some other saint at church about your husband, your wife, or your kids, whatever it might be, you, you talk, instead of venting to others, vent to God. You say, is that allowed? Absolutely. In fact, when you read God's word, this was one of the strengths of King David of Israel. He had a lot of flaws, and he made a lot of mistakes, but one of the things he did really well was he talked to God about everything, and some of what he said to God, he, it, it was, he was venting. I mean, he's got some ugly stuff in the Psalms, if you read them. He wrote about half the Psalms, and some of those are, ugh, they're ugly, the things he has to say. Let me just give you an example on that. Psalm 109, verses 9 through 13. Now, he's talking about his enemy, all right? Some guy is his enemy. He doesn't identify him. But he says this about his enemy. May my enemy's children become fatherless, and my enemy's wife become a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate, and strangers take all he has earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offspring die. May his family name be blotted out in a single generation. And oh, by the way, Jesus loves you. <laughs> you know, you know you, we look at stuff like that and we say, how did that make it in the Bible? How does stuff like that get in the Bible? You know why it's in there? It's because God's trying to teach us how to handle incredibly frustrating times in our lives when we have no one to turn to. He wants you to know that you can turn to him and he's trying to teach you how to handle your anger and your frustration and your conflict. You take it to God not to other people. When we vent to God, we find out sometimes that the problem is us, not necessarily the other people. You know, sometimes we're expecting too much out of our spouse. We, we expect our spouse to fill a spot in our lives that only God can fill. And whenever you do that, you're going to be disappointed with your spouse because they cannot fill that spot that only Jesus can fill. The late uh, Ruth Graham, many of you know the name Billy Graham, and uh, he's still alive, by the way. In fact, he's in his 99th year, 
Next November, he'll be 100 years old. It's incredible. He used to hold these great crusades out throughout America in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and then he got old, can't do it anymore. But uh, the Billy Graham Association is one of the, the great outreach ministries still going on in America today through his son, Franklin Graham. Perhaps you've heard of Franklin. Well, Franklin's mom, Ruth, made this statement, which I think is so good about this, this whole issue we're talking about. She said, I pity the married couple who expect too much from one another. It's foolish to expect from one another that which Jesus Christ can only be, totally forgiving, totally understanding, unendingly patient, invariably tender and loving, unfailing in every area, anticipating every need, making more than adequate provision. Such expectations put a marriage under an impossible strain. There are, there are a couple of myths about marriage that a lot of us live with. Especially if you're single, I want you to hear the first one. If I just get married, all my needs will be met. And we, we think that and we believe that and we, we live under that. And that's absolutely a myth because there's no person in the world that can meet all your needs. And to show that this is a myth, right after you get married, the second myth comes up, which says, if I had just married the right person, all of my needs would be met. The reason we need Jesus is because nobody else can meet all of our needs. Number three, change your focus off of yourself. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, don't be selfish. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too. That works in marriages too, folks. Number four, you got to set some rules. Today's game is going to be marked by rules. There's going to be referees that enforce the rules. We've got to have these things in our family, too, because some of us have this attitude of anything goes. And anything goes is not going to keep you going. It's going to stall you. It's going to destroy you, as a matter of fact. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, stop being mean, bad-tempered, and angry, quarreling, harsh words, and dislike of others should have no place in your lives. You remember Lucy from Peanuts? She said a great thing. If I can't be right, I'm going to be wrong at the top of my lungs. <laughs> if that's your philosophy, you're in trouble. Sometimes we do that. It doesn't work. Number five, go and make peace. Jesus said, when you come to worship me and you remember that you have aught with somebody, you go and make that thing right. And then that's in, that's in Matthew chapter five. Go ahead and pop it up there. You go and, you go and make things right. And then you come back and make your offering to the Lord. So those five things, if you do them, they'll give your family a home field advantage for life. So here's what we need to do. And I'm, I'm wrapping up, so just hold steady for a second. I just wanna counsel you to talk about these things together as husband and wife, and especially if your marriage is in a lot of conflict right now. Talk about these things together. Because your home needs to be a place that offers a home field advantage to your kids, to one another. So let me ask you, does it? Simple question. Is your home offering a home field advantage to your family? If you say no, are you a part of why it doesn't? Because no one person causes it. Well, you don't know 
know what he's like. You don't know what I have to live with her, with her, you know. I know I don't. But Jesus does. You take that to him. Well, I took it to him once, three months ago, and nothing changed. Well, maybe you need to take it to him more often. Maybe it needs to continue right on. Your home needs to be a sanctuary against this world. Is it? And it all starts by selling yourself out to Jesus. So have you? Have you sold it out to Jesus? This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.